Your company's future success demands agile, flexible, and resilient operations. I'm your host, Daphne Luchtenberg, and you're listening to McKinsey Talks Operations, a podcast where the world's C-suite leaders and McKinsey experts cut through the noise and uncover how to create a new operational reality. Climate change is creating new levels of complexity for infrastructure and capital projects, such as roads, bridges, buildings, and utilities. Long-term planning has become fraught with uncertainty as leaders seek to invest in projects with long lifespans and pursue net-zero targets that are decades away. At the same time, extreme weather is already impacting our built environment in a real and immediate way, from electricity outages to flood-damaged roads. These phenomena affect lives and livelihoods, they alter project economics, and they create costly service interruptions. Understanding and mitigating these climate risks will be essential to manage costs and ensure critical continuity. In particular, new projects must be planned, designed, built, and operated to account for climate transitions. McKinsey's Global Infrastructure Initiative, or GII, convenes senior leaders to exchange ideas and solutions on these critical infrastructure challenges. Today's segment, in collaboration with GII's Voices on Infrastructure, features Alex Guy, a partner at the international law firm Ashurst. Alex's key focus is on transport and infrastructure, and he sits on Ashurst's Global Infrastructure Industry Board. He has over 20 years' experience advising on projects across Asia-Pacific and the UK. We're also lucky to have Brody Boland, a partner joining us from McKinsey's Washington, D.C. office. Brody is a leader in McKinsey's work on climate risk, particularly in real estate and infrastructure. Today, we're looking at how climate risk and resilience can be built into capital projects, both early on and throughout the life cycle. Welcome, Alex. Welcome, Brody. Thank you. Thanks very much, Daphne. Alex, to um, to kick off the conversation here, what could you just kind of give us an introduction? What's prompting capital project leaders to prioritize climate resilience and sustainability now? Players in the infrastructure market, they're looking for projects with long-term, steady, sustainable revenues. And those projects have to cover the initial capital expenditure they incur in delivering infrastructure assets at the outset. They've got to pay for their ongoing operating and maintenance costs, and they've got to achieve a reasonable return. So you set that desire for long-term stability against the fact that we're going through a period of extreme uncertainty. And what you get is huge pressure on governments, investors and market players to prioritize resilience and sustainability. But it's not just an issue of climate change and extreme weather events. It's all against the backdrop of other uncertainties like supply chain issues, sanctions, domestic political risk, hyperinflation and more. And then on top of that, There's a lot of capital out there at the moment looking for opportunities that fit within investors' ESG goals. So that's another factor that's inevitably leading to an increased focus on decarbonisation and sustainability. Thanks, Alex. And Brody, are are we seeing a similar picture in the conversations that we're having with clients? Yeah, I think Alex stated it really well. I think I think one of the the interesting thing that's happened over the last couple of years is there's reached a bit of a critical mass of players and stakeholders in the ecosystem that are really focused on these issues. So if you're a, you know, a capital project investor, a real estate owner or investor, you're now getting questions from your investors, you're getting questions from your lenders, you're getting questions from your regulators, you're getting questions from your shareholders, you're getting questions from your tenants if if you've got them. And so just over the last, you know, I'd say 12 to 18 months or so, that awareness has reached a level where it's it's essentially a 
a core part of the consideration of any investment opportunity of any major product development. And and what are stakeholders doing differently then to start to um, think about climate risk and to embed it into their projects? Alex, how do you work with clients on that? Well, look, I think what we're seeing is a much more systematic approach to project design and due diligence than we used to. And that really aims to achieve a better understanding of risks and how to mitigate them. And that's leading to a much better developed mitigation measures in general being built into projects up front to address climate and other risks, which leads to more resilient projects. In fact, at the moment, we're working on a a new standardised due diligence approach for infrastructure projects that looks to take ASHA's existing framework and expand it out to specifically focus on climate-related and other resilience risks in areas like energy costs, carbon reduction initiatives, both voluntary and regulatory, supply chain management, labour issues, domestic and international political risks, technology obsolescence, cyber security, and so on. At the end of last year, we commissioned a survey of our infrastructure clients and industry stakeholders. And as part of that, not surprisingly, governments were seen as having the most significant influence on the sector. But a lot of respondents were frustrated at the way those governments were carrying out their role. In fact, more than three quarters of the respondents named a lack of coherent government policy as the biggest barrier to a coordinated response to the changes likely to impact the sector. So I think we can take from that that the challenge is for governments to make a step change in the way they regulate and legislate for the sector, both locally and globally, to create an environment that's going to encourage more resilient infrastructure to emerge. Bertie, what what would you say is needed in addition to that to really move the whole the whole movement forward, if you like, to ensure that we're using similar standards and um, approaching this risk in a common way. I think one of the big shifts that needs to happen is we need to move from a kind of risk register approach to understanding climate risk and resilience to an approach that truly grounds these risks in the fundamental drivers of asset economics. You see a lot of times a kind of scorecard type approach where an asset's a one or an asset's a three or an asset's a five and five is bad is one and one is good. And it's hard to know what to do with that. If you're an operator, if you're an investor, how bad is four? How, how, how good is two? And so I think shifting to from that kind of scorecard approach to one that really connects the risks that are likely to be experienced to fundamental drivers of revenue, to fundamental drivers of cost of operations, to uptime, to um, reliability for uh, an important stakeholder group in a way that allows decision-making, right? And allows folks to figure out, okay, is, is it worth making this resilience investment in the asset? Does that generate the level of value creation that we want and that we need and that fits our, our investing theses and so on? I completely agree with that, Brody, and not, not just in relation to understanding the risks in relation to the project at the outset, but also I think a more systematic approach to developing mitigation strategies that are um, perhaps less simplistic than that kind of scorecard approach that you you described so that projects can actually be adapted at the outset to become more resilient and long-lasting. That's interesting, actually, Alex. I was going to go probe more um, around, you know, when we think about the lifespan of these projects, which is often very long, how do you inject flexibility and adaptability in that? How do you think about that in terms of mitigating risks as well. Industry stakeholders across the board are working pretty hard at the moment to develop flexible contractual mechanisms to make projects more resilient. I think one of the things I think 
really needs to change is the approach to business case assessment on the government side. All players really need to look at their approach on that. Uh, it's no longer good enough to just take the previous model and extrapolate it out. I think there are a whole load of new categories of risks and opportunities out there. I also mentioned earlier that I think we need better alignment between value and values. And because for many players in the market, the only way they're going to affect change is if it's profitable for them. And so there needs to be an evolution in mentality from mitigating against the threats of challenge to a mentality that sees challenge as an opportunity so that governments and businesses can identify and show where the drivers of sustainable growth are so that taxpayers and markets see the value in the desired outcomes and therefore invest in the means of delivering those outcomes. Yeah. Brody, anything you would add there? I love that point about, you know, making sure that the value is clear to the broader set of stakeholders. And, you know, if we think about the just sheer scale of need for investment in this, you know, adaptation infrastructure and resilience to existing infrastructure that's going to be required over the coming decades, that's going to be critical, right? If we're not able to show that value to a broader set of stakeholders and link that value to the investment that needs to be made in that adaptation infrastructure or in resilience investments in existing infrastructure. It's going to be tough to, to, to find the capital to, to get this done. And Brody, how do you make sure that the infrastructure is resilient in view of climate risk? But of course, we also have the decarbonization targets, right, that we need to be working towards. So as we build out the infrastructure going forward to 2050, can you see a way that these two um, objectives can dovetail together? Yeah, I and it, I think it's just so critical to make sure that they do, right? And in a few ways. One is, at the project level, many projects can be designed to achieve both objectives, right? So you can have resilience, resilience measures that also serve a decarbonization objective or decarbonization objectives that serve uh, resilience measures. One example of that is, a very simple example is building energy efficiency. You know, building energy efficiency investments both reduce the energy consumption of the building, but also make the building more resilient to extreme heat, extreme cold. And there are countless examples like that throughout the, the built environment. So I think, you know, whenever possible at the project level, at the portfolio level, at the, the regional or the country level, we need to make sure that uh, the decarbonization and resilience objectives are paired. Got it. And that's kind of part of the value equation, I imagine, Alex, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do agree with what Brody said. The more that you can highlight to investors and other players in the market the risks that they're exposed to from climate change, the more likely they are to link their resilience, decarbonization strategies in that way. So critical here really is how to ensure you've got all the data so that you can make the right decisions and you can make the right calculations. What are some of the challenges? Um, Brody, I'll come to you first um, around um, the decision, well, getting the decision makers to have access to the right data. Yeah, and I would work backwards, right? So I think instead of starting from the data and figuring out kind of what data a government, an investor, an operator, whoever it is, needs, I would actually start from the impact and work backwards to the data. So, for example, you know, a few characteristics and things that I think we see often in terms of challenges with, with data environments. A lot of the hazard data is not granular enough, right? So if you're working backwards, 
you will quickly know that a one square mile resolution for flood data is just not sufficient. That's a huge area of a city that involves, you know, in, in most cities includes places that are on hills and places that are in valleys. And so, you know, getting a sufficient granularity um, in terms of both, both space and time of the hazard data, making sure that all the major risks are covered. You're, you want to be looking across all of the risks, not just whatever data happens to be most easily available. Another important thing is we often focus on the most acute risks. They're dramatic, they're big, they're at points in time. In many cases, it's the chronic risks that are actually going to have the most damaging effect on assets. You know, if you think about it from the perspective of a building, you can, in some cases, insure against the major flood that happens every three or four years or every 10 years. It's harder to insure and protect against the water kind of gently lapping in the lobby of your building every day. And so really understanding the chronic risks in addition to the acute risks is important. And then ultimately making sure they're able to translate all of that data back into fundamental impact on the asset, right? How does it affect operations? How does it affect um, performance of the asset? Alex, anything to add there? Um, well, some excellent advice there from Brody. I don't think you can just take a questionnaire or whatever, an approach to due diligence, look at the same things you looked at last time and tick the boxes. I think you've got to look at the outset at what are your criteria, what are you trying to achieve, what are your goals, and then design the data, the uh, collection, the data sources, the methodology and the reporting to match those outcomes so that you can make decisions consistently on a high quality basis. And Alex, have you have you seen any kind of examples and things that are that are happening that are making you a little optimistic um, in this area? In general, yes. Um, I mean, looking at my own home city, Brisbane, as an example, I'm quite optimistic about some of the infrastructure initiatives that are taking place as part of the planning for the 2032 Olympic Games here. And as part of the bid to host the Games, Brisbane gave a commitment to be the first ever climate positive Games. There's a lot of debate about what climate positive actually means, but that commitment in itself is already having a massive impact on project planning by encouraging a focus on decarbonisation. And as a city that's experienced at least three extreme flooding events in the 11 years that I've, well, I've been here about 13 years, but in the last 11 years, we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to resilience in the lead up to the Games. Brody, um, how about further afield? Have you, have you seen any um, great examples that uh, can lead the way? Yeah, it's, Alex and I, I guess, are both thinking about our hometowns. I, I, uh, I was in Calgary recently, which is where I'm from, uh, which had a real enormous flood in 2013, at the time, it was the largest uh, or the costliest natural disaster in Canada's history, you know, major flooding in the whole downtown area. And uh, there's a, a green infrastructure project there. It's essentially a combination of a park and flood mitigation measures. It, it creates a transportation corridor for, for cyclists and pedestrians. It's right beside downtown. Um, there's picnic areas. You know, my kids played in, in a little pool created by the the Bow River catchment. Um, my wife and I went for a trail run in the in the park there, in the shadows of the skyscrapers of downtown Calgary. You know, a friend and I sat and chatted by a beaver pond, and it was just a, an excellent example of a, a project that 
achieved a very important kind of flood mitigation effort that created biodiversity outcomes, that created livability, that increased property values in downtown, that activated an area of downtown, that created a number of social benefits for folks in that area. And I don't know, those kind of projects make me really optimistic. And it feels like both of those examples kind of have a common purpose, a common vision at the heart of it, which seems to have been shared across the stakeholders. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I know in in Calgary, there was a significant amount of stakeholder engagement of both the average citizen, the business community, the experts and flood managers, the transportation planners in coming up with a project like that. And I think it's through that kind of stakeholder collaboration that you can get a project that actually hits the objectives of all of those all of those groups yeah similar for brisbane and there you know for the for the bid for the olympic and paralympic games that's required a lot of industry stakeholders and others to uh, to collaborate and participate together in developing that proposal and then also in working out how it's going to be delivered and particularly how that commitment to be the first ever climate positive games will be delivered And Alex, just, um, you know, what other mindsets and models are important? You know, once you start with that kind of common vision and common purpose, what, what other things need to be true to be successful? We're talking about uncertainties here and and what to do in the face of uncertainty. There is always uncertainty and smart investors will always move with the times. I think the mindset that can increase the odds of success is to see challenges, but look for the opportunities in them as well as seeing the risks. So I think from a government perspective, it's looking at where are the opportunities to align value with values, to create a regulatory environment which encourages the solutions that they're trying to achieve. And for businesses, it's where do the challenges actually present opportunities to design solutions to issues arising from climate change and other resilience factors. Brody, anything you would add in terms of other success factors? I think dealing with climate change in many ways can often be extremely overwhelming. And I think it helps to kind of get a handle on the things that you can actually get a handle on. You can actually access some pretty good information and data about what's likely to happen to your asset. And it is certainly a kind of probabilistic data. It is, you know, you you can't treat it as a point prediction, but it can be a foundation for just making some better decisions about the design of the asset. And so I think in the broader kind of swirl of things that aren't able to be controlled, it sometimes helps to, to kind of do the, do the math on the things that you can at least get a, a sense of what might happen in the future and make sure that the asset, the, the project, et cetera, is being uh, planned accordingly. And um, infrastructure and capital assets, they can be a real vehicle for advancing you know, decarbonization efforts, improving the livelihoods and the environments of of our citizens. Um, So there's a real opportunity here too, right, Alex? Absolutely. And as as Brody said earlier, I think, you know, resilience and uh, decarbonization are inextricably linked. There are huge opportunities in the development of new technology, for example, in the transport sector, where I do a lot of my work with the move to zero emission vehicles. I also think the water sector presents a lot of opportunity. As a result of climate change, water is becoming more and more of a concern, both in terms of either there being not enough of it or too much of it, like the floods we were talking about earlier. So I think water infrastructure has to be an area of major focus and major opportunity. 
Brody, what would you say, you know, when you when we're talking to clients, where are some of the areas of opportunity where there is white space to act? I think green infrastructure is going to be uh, particularly because it it does hit both the decarbonization and the resilience objectives often uh, is going to be a, a real big part of the solution in many places around the world. And then I think there is an opportunity for innovative players who are able to think differently about new contracting models, new financial models, ways in which the kind of benefits of a resilience project can be reinvested in improved resilience or in improved decarbonization. And then last, I think there's a broader opportunity for connecting all of these together in ways that make our cities more livable, more sustainable, more resilient. Alex and I both talked about projects earlier, examples that that we were excited about in cities that do achieve multiple objectives. And I think there's, you know, real opportunity for creative designers, for creative infrastructure developers or, or real estate developers to, you know, reshape our cities in ways that make them better places to live, more prosperous and more uh, sustainable and resilient. Thank you. So while it's an uncertain area, it is heavy with risk. Um, we need to continue to move forward and, um, it feels like you're both saying there's some great opportunity here to really build a much, much better world for all of us. Absolutely. That's for sure. Fantastic. You've been listening to McKinsey Talks Operations with me, Daphne Luchtenberg. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode.